Again, uh, scripture reading for this morning, we'll be looking again at Matthew uh, 5, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. And uh, the verses of interest for the day will be covering verses 6 through 8. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, as already been mentioned, we are continuing our study in the book of Matthew. And last week, we began our look at the Sermon on the Mount, and more specifically, we're within that section of the Sermon of, on the Mount known as the Beatitudes. And Beatitude isn't a word that we typically use outside of talking about these particular verses, but Beatitude means a state of blessedness, or as Merriam-Webster defines it, a state of absolute bliss. And it's from the Latin translation of Scripture that we even get this word and that the Beatitudes get their name. The English phrase rendered blessed are begins with the Latin word beati, which gives the name of the Beatitudes. You can hear how that came to be. And so what we have here in verses 3 through 10 or 3 to 12, depending on how people count those Beatitudes, are several pronouncements of blessedness from Jesus about the blessings that are associated with the kingdom. And these blessings go far beyond mere happiness, though it, it is not incorrect to say that blessed in this sense means happy, but it goes far beyond what we think of as happiness. And it's a state of joyful spiritual prosperity, even if external comforts are absent. As one commentator put it, blessed in this sense is to be happy regardless of happenings. So you're happy regardless of your circumstances. And this morning we're going to look at the fourth, fifth, and sixth Beatitudes. And while each of these verses could be a sermon unto itself, we're going to see that they all deal with the marks of kingdom living, both how we obtain citizenship in the kingdom and how we are to live as citizens of God's kingdom. So we're going to take up one verse at a time in order to consider these marks of blessed happiness, as well as the specific blessings that accompany each one. So let's begin with a closer look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. As he so often did, Jesus uses a simple yet very powerful image 
to deliver this spiritual truth. And, and as so often is the case, we, where we're sitting today, so far removed in time and place, we have to do a little bit more work in order to rightly understand that imagery. Because when we say that we're hungry, what we mean is we have not eaten in the last hour and a half. And when we are thirsty, we only need to go to the faucet and fill a glass with cold, clean, safe water. But for the first century Israelite, the pain, the severe pain of hunger and the need for water in the hot, dry climate, that would have been acutely felt by all who heard Jesus speak. He's speaking about real hunger and real thirst, not just I'm in the mood to eat again. And what is hunger and thirst but a physical and unyielding reminder of needing what we lack? Our bodies must have food and water or we will die. And when we are in need of those necessities, we feel physical discomfort that only increases as the need becomes more serious. And those who are starving will not be satisfied with anything but food. And they'll gladly trade all other earthly goods in exchange for something to eat. Those who are blessed, we are told, are those who have such a strong, unyielding desire for righteousness. They're not already filled with their own righteousness, but they recognize their need for it, their lack of it, and they long after and they pursue it as a starving man seeks food or a man wandering the desert seeks something to drink. They'll be satisfied with nothing else and nothing less for nothing else can truly satisfy this hunger. What you hunger for reveals your inner desires. And we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we are to find our satisfaction for this desire from God, as the psalmist did when he wrote, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. To be righteous is to be in a state acceptable to God, to be, to be holy, to be spiritually pure, to be upright. We lack such righteousness, and so we must find it outside of ourselves. Just as the man who lacks food must seek nourishment from an external source. And verse 6 promises us that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. That is, they shall be filled. They shall be filled to the full, the word really means. And they'll obtain the object of that desire. That satisfaction comes from God alone, for nothing else truly can satisfy such hunger and thirst. Jesus taught in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Now, clearly, Jesus is not speaking about physical hunger and physical thirst here. He's speaking on a spiritual level. It is in Christ that we will be satisfied in our hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
And there are actually several ways in which Christ satisfies our hunger and thirst for righteousness. First, in Christ, we are declared righteous. That is, we receive what Martin Luther referred to as an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. This is what takes place when we put our faith in Christ for salvation. Our debt of sin is applied to him, and his abundance of holiness was applied to us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Titus chapter 3 and verses 3 to 7 says it so beautifully, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So again, one of the ways that we have that desire satisfied is being declared righteous. Well, also in Christ, we increasingly become righteous. It's one thing to be declared righteous according to the righteousness of Christ, but once that takes place, we continue to grow in our Christ-likeness and in our faith and in our righteousness through greater obedience to Him and His Word. And that is what we are saved for. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, First Peter tells us. That is one of the main purposes of Scripture. A verse that's likely familiar to many of you, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We need to be trained up in righteousness as believers. So as Paul instructed the church in Ephesus, we are to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Whereas our being declared righteous has to do with our justification, our increasingly becoming righteous has to do with our sanctification. It is yet another way in which Christ satisfies that hunger and that thirst. We know also that in Christ, one day, we will be made perfectly righteous. In this life, believers have been freed from the penalty and the power of sin, but not the presence of it. We still struggle in many ways against the world and the flesh and the devil, and we will never be free from sin in this life. But a day is coming when Christ will return and we shall be glorified. 
And we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, the apostle John wrote in 1 John. Our, our glorification is being made perfectly into the image of God's Son. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, Scripture tells us, and that will take place when we are ultimately glorified. We will be free from the very presence of sin. So rest assured, you will be satisfied when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, provided we seek it where it can be found. And so the question that we all must ask ourselves is, do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Not just have a, a general interest in righteousness, that is, in pursuing Christ and being more Christ-like and seeing Christ's kingdom expanded in this world. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or have you spoiled your appetite for the things of God by stuffing yourself with the things of this world that can never truly satisfy? So many times we pursue satisfaction in what the world has to offer, spending our money on that which is not bread, as the prophet Isaiah said, or digging cisterns, broken cisterns for ourselves that can hold no water, as we read from Jeremiah. If we do not hunger and thirst for righteousness, it may be that we will not allow ourselves to feel the pain of hunger because we are filling ourselves up on other things. If you are not hungry, you are not thirsty for righteousness, consider that a very serious check engine light. Just as a body that has no appetite and no physical hunger and no physical thirst at all is the sign of something going wrong with that physical body, so too a lack of hunger and thirst for righteousness and spiritual things is a warning sign to us that we might pull over to the side of the road and pop the hood and try to determine what is going on so that it might be addressed all of us must take up the call of 1 Timothy 6.11, which urges, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, that is, earthly things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Let us continue to recognize our great need and the abundant provision of our great Savior and hunger and thirst for righteousness, for we shall be satisfied. Well, leaving one beatitude, we continue on to the next here in verse 7. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, in reading this verse, it is clear that in order to rightly understand it, we must rightly understand what mercy is. To show mercy is to extend kindness, concern, compassion to someone in need. Our Lord provided us two very vivid parables to illustrate the nature of true godly mercy. And, and both of these will be very familiar to you, no doubt. One is the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
Now, in Matthew 18, we read of a man who owed a great debt to a king. So large, it would be impossible for him to repay it. It was about 20 years wages for a laborer. And when he and his family were about to be sold along with all that they had in order to satisfy the debt, the man fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Out of pity for him, the master released him and forgave him the entire debt. But while the man expressed some gratitude for that, in short order, he encountered encountered a man who owed him a very small amount, perhaps a day's wages for a laborer. And he responded quite differently than the king had. He said, we read that seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. Though the man pleaded just as he did before the king, he refused and he had him thrown into prison. Well, when word reached his master, he summoned the man whose debt had been forgiven. We read what he said to him. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And he delivered him to the jailers until the debt would be repaid. That is a powerful negative illustration of what a lack of mercy looks like. Well, our Lord gave an equally powerful but a positive illustration in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me to read this in its entirety from Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember that as the context of the question that is being put to Jesus as we read his answer. And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. He said, the one who showed him 
mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What is it that we learn from these parables regarding what mercy is? Well, to show mercy is to recognize a need, have the ability to meet that need, and take action to do so. And this is a fundamental element of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Remember what question set up that parable to begin with. It was, what must I do to inherit life? And it's not that those things merit or earn eternal life, but those are the things that flow through from one who has been saved by Jesus Christ. We are called to be merciful. And we read the verse before us this morning that the merciful shall be blessed by receiving mercy. Now, as with, with all the Beatitudes, we must not read verse 7 as a causal relationship or that in order to earn God's mercy, we must first prove ourselves merciful. That is not how we are saved. Like so many spiritual truths, and so many of the Beatitudes, for that matter, this is a cyclical reality. There is a cycle to it. Yes, those in the kingdom must be merciful because we have been shown mercy by God. That is the lesson of the unforgiving servant, is it not? We must not forget the great debt that we have been forgiven. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 tells us, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And you can see the order of that in regards to salvation. It is not our mercy first, and then God seeks to respond to that in kind. It is because of the great love and mercy that God has that he saved us, even when we were dead in trespasses in sin. And so while that reverses the beatitude somewhat, it is nevertheless the central truth that we are to show mercy to others because we have been shown mercy from God. And at the same time, that, that cyclical nature of the beatitude kicks in in that and showing mercy as we have received it, we shall receive even more mercy still. Psalm 18.25, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. The exact same phrase is found in 2 Samuel 22.6. That same truth is presented in opposite terms in James 2.13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. In more positive terms, in Matthew 6.14, we read, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So again, such mercy that we receive from God is a blessing given for obedience, not payment for our actions. We are saved by His mercy and not by our merit. But having been saved by Christ. God continues to show himself merciful as we show mercy to others. When we act as the unforgiving servant did, you can be sure that we will be chastised by our heavenly father. And when we act as the good Samaritan did, we will please the Lord and we will be blessed in doing so. 
So keep your mind and your heart focused on what God has done for you, and you will be far more willing and even eager to extend kindness, compassion, and mercy to others. Well, finally, let's look at the third beatitude that we are going to turn to this morning, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Greek word for pure uh, means clean, blameless, unstained by sin. Purity is the absence of anything that would pollute it, like a water uh, that is free from all contaminants. It is pure. Pureness of heart and having a heart that is inclined and devoted to God is a concept that you're going to find many places in your Bibles. Create in me a clean heart, O God, is the psalmist's cry. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So clearly the heart is not meant only as the organ that pumps blood throughout the body, but as the spiritual center of the individual. It's the core of who you are. We see that also used in such a way many times. Proverbs 27, 19, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man. Jesus taught that it is out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So apart from Christ, our hearts are, are sin factories. They are fountains of sin. At the same time, Romans 10, 9-10 teaches that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. To speak of the heart is to speak of who we truly are deep down. It includes our minds, our actions, our affections. And as we read in this beatitude and in so many other places, our hearts are to be pure and set apart for God. In other words, we are to be holy. Now, in one sense, the believer no longer has the same problem of an impure, sinful heart as they did prior to coming to Christ. We are given a new heart when we repent of sin and, and put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. This is just as the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel wrote, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, and be careful to obey my rules. Well, as we saw in the passage from Romans a moment ago, that is what takes place when we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That is when the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So in one sense, your hearts 
are pure, having been redeemed by the atoning death of Jesus Christ. But in another sense, however, even believers are in danger of failing to have a pure heart. If pure water is that which is free from all contaminants, and pure gold is free from any and all other elements, so too a pure heart is free from the contaminants and imperfections of sin. And as we've already mentioned, that will not take place in this life. And so you see that in this sense, we must be constantly vigilant and at work to pursue purity of heart. And God is continually at work refining us to make us more pure. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to pursue holiness and to maintain purity of heart. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, Hebrews 3.12 says. Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Proverbs 4.23 warns us to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. These verses speak of intentional, continual effort on our part. And just as our pursuit of, as with our pursuit of righteousness, we will never be perfect in this life, but by God's grace, we will make continual progress in purity and have increasing victory over sin. And so the pure in heart are blessed, for conformity to Christ is a blessing in itself, and because the pure in heart will see God. We know from the book of Hebrews that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Our sin has separated us from fellowship with Him, and unless we receive a pure heart through faith in Christ, we will remain separated from Him for all eternity. But those who are holy... Those who have been made holy by the blood of Christ will see God. For the pure in heart, to see God first means that, that they have been purified, they've been made righteous and cleansed from sin by the blood of Christ, and they will spend eternity with God. But additionally, being blessed with seeing God also speaks of a continual close communion with God. Draw near to God, James 4, 8 says, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. As believers in Christ, we have a relationship with God. But just as with human relationships, we are tempted to keep our distance from those we have wronged. When we live lives that are not worthy of the calling to which we've been called, our tendency is to drift away. In that sense, failing to maintain purity of heart by tolerating sin in our lives will keep us from communion with God through prayer and His Word. And so we feel that there is a distance between us and that we do not, in a spiritual sense, see Him as we ought. But when we are walking in obedience... Our communion with God is unhindered by unconfessed sin and self-focused. When we are pure in heart, we shall see God. We shall see 
God in the person of Jesus Christ. We shall see God when we appreciate and are attuned to his handiwork and creation. We shall see God when we discern his truth in the scriptures. We shall see God when we sense our intimacy with him in prayer. We shall see God when we recognize his works of providence. And we shall see God when we have a greater understanding of his purposes in refining us. Remember, though, that it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks and the hands act. We cannot purify our lives from the outside in, but only from the inside out. If we do the opposite, as we so often attempt to do, we shall be like the Pharisees, whom Jesus rebuked in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. We do not want to be hypocrites, clean on the outside in word and in deed, but impure on the inside, in heart and in thought. So the question must be on all our hearts, how can we who are in Christ remain pure so that we may be blessed with seeing God so clearly? Well, thankfully, Scripture provides a direct answer to that very question. In Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11, we read, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In order to maintain purity of heart, we must guard it carefully according to God's word. But not by being hearers only, but by being doers of the word. That with our heart that we would seek him, that we would not wander from his commandments. We would walk in obedience and that we would put away sin. God has not left us to our own devices to figure out how we are to act in a fallen world. He has blessed us with his written revelation in the scripture, which guides us in how we are to live for Christ and die to self. Be in the word. Conform your life to scripture and your heart will be pure. But what about when we don't? Because sometimes we won't. Thanks be to God, he has given us provision for this as well. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is not a promise to the pagan only who is in need of salvation. It is a promise to the saved who need forgiveness each and every day. The first step towards pureness of heart is having our heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, and that takes place when we repent of sin and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. Here we are forgiven of our sins. We are declared righteous. And that is thanks to the mercy and to the grace of God. And as we live in this world, we will have God's word to direct us, his spirit to empower us, and his abundant mercy to forgive us 
when we repent of our sins and our failures, which each and every one of us will have need to do each and every day. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Each of these beatitudes have Christ both as the source of and the motivation for obedience. He makes it possible to experience these blessings that accompany salvation, and he enables us to exhibit these traits in our lives for which we will be blessed. May we look to him in gratitude for all that he has done for us and look to him for the grace needed to follow him in pursuing righteousness, showing mercy, and maintaining purity of heart. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for the reality of your word, which at once convicts and challenges us, but at the same time comforts and encourages us. For as we read the Beatitudes as so much of Scripture, we see that we do not measure up to these things. And so we thank you that it is not dependent on us that we would earn our own salvation, nor would we keep ourselves in your hands by our own actions, but it is by your righteousness, by your mercy, by your purity that we are saved and that we are kept. At the same time, Lord, we do not take these things only to mean and only to be indications that we need salvation, though this is true, we do see these as the ways in which we should walk in order to honor you with our lives. God, help us to do so. Put in us a hunger and thirst for righteousness and guard us against seeking to satisfy those needs elsewhere. Lord, help us to be merciful. Keep us mindful of the great mercy that we have been shown. Open our eyes to needs. Show us how we might meet them. Help us to put our hands to work in doing so. Lord, help us that we would maintain our purity, that we would not be lax in our walk with you, but that we would see it does, in fact, take diligent effort on our part. But help us not to fall into the either ditch, that we would either sit back and, and not put forth effort, or that we would despair at the impossibility of doing this in our own power, for we have your spirit at work within us. We thank you for all these things, Lord, for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come now as we do every week to the Lord's table. I think it's, it's so easy for these beatitudes to be something that we just, we hear We've heard before, and, and they're, they're nice sounding. They sound, uh, sound very, very Christian. Without, so easy to come to them and just kind of gloss over and not, 
really think about what what is being said to think about the the hunger and the thirst for righteousness as, as clay just spoke to us about that that longing that need for righteousness that need that that is there because of being poor in spirit and recognizing your sin because of mourning over your sin and your the break in the relationship with God that that causes us to be to be meek to understand who we are and to be able to treat others res- in response to that all that causes that that hunger and thirst for Christ for righteousness that it, that is not our own and the table is such a beautiful reminder of that because in the, in the the bread and in the juice we're reminded of needing that broken body and the shed blood of Christ we we need that so in the act of of eating consuming these things we are acting out our spiritual need because we are unable on our own we we need a a foreign sustenance a foreign righteousness so as we come forward in just a moment i just encourage you to to think that process that to, to pray through that in your mind just that we'd really be awakened to that reality of how much we need Christ, and as we eat the the bread and and the and the juice, drink the juice, and remembering that our need caused God to send His Son to have His body broken, His blood shed for us, and it is only by taking that onto ourselves in our need by faith that we shall be satisfied, because we will have. Christ. We will be found in Christ before God. So if, if, if you are walking with Christ, if you are walking by faith and not, not by a pharisaical sense of have you done all these right things, but are you trusting in Christ? If you are walking in Christ, then I ask you to come forward and to, to go grab of, of the elements and in just a few moments we'll pray together and then take them together.